The Sea of Galilee is protected from the winds and the weather that come off of the Mediterranean by a ridge of mountains. However, there is a break in that ridge of mountains. And if the winds get just right and are funneled through that break, even though the Sea of Galilee is a small lake, uh, violent storms arise, suddenly sometimes. Probably just such a storm as this arose when our Lord was in there asleep on a cushion in the boat, and the disciples awakened him with the words, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And immediately there was a great calm. The words of the apostles are the subject of my lesson tonight. Carest thou not that we perish. And I hope that I can impress upon you like you have never had impressed before how much the Lord loves you and how much he does care and how interested he is in your eternal salvation. There are probably many ways that we could go about that, but I'm convinced that the greatest and most impressive expression would be in the gift of his Son. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to begin the story by the upper room after the Passover meal when the Lord was there with his disciples. He took the bread and passed it among them and said, This is my body, which is for you. Take and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and said, This is my blood, which is poured out for the remission of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that beautiful and simple little ceremony, he prefigured the offering of his body and the shedding of his blood, which soon would follow. Shortly after that, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is just east of Jerusalem, not far at all, and if it was a clear night, it was a full moon. Passover always has a full moon. And they went across a little gorge called the Kidron, and then there was the Mount of Olives, and they went up the Mount of Olives and came into a park, a garden called Gethsemane. Our Lord left eight of the disciples and told them to watch and pray lest they enter temptation. He then took the other three, Peter, James, and John. Judas was already off tending to other business. Peter, James, and John, and told them the same thing. And then he went a bit farther into the garden, and there he prayed. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. I've heard some people say that our Lord could have saved man any number of ways, and he just happened to choose to do it by a crucifixion, the offering of his life. But I don't believe that. I don't believe there was anything in this life or in any other world that is strong enough to take away the stain of sin besides the blood of Jesus. And I imagine that if there had been another way, the Father would have been willing to do it. But there was no other way. And our Lord, realizing that, said, But not my will, but thy will be done. And then he went back and found the disciples asleep and awakened them again and then went back and prayed a second time in the same words and a third time. 
he went back and prayed again. And the word of God says, and there fell from him great drops of sweat as if it were blood. There have been people suggest that actually blood broke from the pores of the skin and uh, in times of extreme emotion that blood would uh, secrete from the skin like that. I've asked a number of doctors if that's possible. I've always gotten the same answer. I've never seen it happen, but I wouldn't say it couldn't. <laughs> My opinion is that probably the perspiration was just pouring off of him in the intense uh, anxiety of that moment and dropped down in the puddles on the ground and in the moonlight looked like puddles of blood. But at any rate, this is similar to what uh, we have read here. And an angel from God came and ministered to him. A lot of people say that the agony in the garden was perhaps the greatest agony of all that our Lord experienced. I do not think so, and later on in the lesson I'll tell you where I think that comes in. But at any rate, our Lord spent that time wrestling with these things in his own heart and realizing that this is what it took so man would not perish. If this is what it was, then this is what he would do. And our Lord went back after this struggle and found the disciples asleep and said, Sleep on and take your rest, for the hand of the betrayer is near. It wasn't long after that until they could, uh, you could hear the sound of the men coming up and the clank of the armor, perhaps, and the voices, and you could see the lanterns and the torches, the flickering. And our Lord just went right out to them as they approached him, and he said, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am he. Well, they weren't expecting that. <clears throat> they fell backward. I guess those on the front row were so astonished, they backed up and knocked the others down, and some fell to the ground. If they'd known it had been that easy, they could have saved 30 pieces of silver and didn't need Judas. Isn't that right? And then a second time, he said, Whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I've told you plainly that I am he. If then it is I that you seek, let these go their way. He's probably talking about the disciples. He may be talking about the soldiers there with their weapons. But anyway, there's no need for any of this. I'm the one you're looking for. Here I am. Judas wanted to earn his 30 pieces of silver, and so he placed the kiss of betrayal upon the cheek of Jesus. And our Lord said, Friend, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Peter had promised that he would go with the Lord to prison and to death, and he meant it. And he had one of the two swords that they had. Knowing Peter, he may have had them both. And he wailed into the crowd, and he cut off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. By the way, this proves that Peter was left-handed. See, aren't you glad you came out to learn something? Well, if he was right-handed, he'd be going this way at him, and you'd duck that way and lose your left ear. Isn't that right? So all of you Southpaws can be proud to learn that Peter was probably left-handed. I hope you'll remember more than that from the lesson. But anyway... He cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and the Lord rebuked him, and he said, Put your sword in its place, for they that take the sword will perish with the sword. And he touched him, and he healed the servant. Jesus, uh, Peter, Jesus also said to Peter, Do you not think that I could even now beseech my father, and he would send me more than twelve legions of angels? A legion was usually six thousand. Twelve legions would be 72,000 angels. He said, you don't have to fight to deliver me. I could say the word and this place would be covered with angels. 72,000 angels. Did you think that would be enough to take care of that little crowd that night? I've always figured half an angel would be more than enough. What do you think? 
But he says, this is what is necessary for the scripture to be fulfilled. And so our Lord went with them. And all the disciples, of course, forsook him and fled at this time. And they brought Jesus back into the city. And there were a series of six mock trials. And the first of these was before Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas had been high priest, an older man, maybe he'd retired, but out of reference maybe to him or deference, uh, they brought Jesus to him. And so they uh, questioned Jesus, and they said about his teaching, what did you teach, what are you doing? And he says, I've done nothing in secret, ask those that heard me. I've done nothing that you haven't already known or heard. And one of the officers went up to him and struck him in the mouth. This is the first blow, as far as I know, that Jesus received. But it is by no means going to be the last. And he said, Answerest thou the high priest so? And our Lord said, If I have spoken evil, bear witness to the evil. But if not, then why do you smite me? Well, nothing came of this first trial, and so our Lord was then carried to Caiaphas. Uh, he was the high priest. They had even hired false witnesses for this trial. And they were talking about how he had spoken against the temple, that he would rebuild it in three days after it was destroyed. And even their testimony did not agree. And so it looked like nothing much was going to come of this trial either. Finally, Caiaphas went up to him and said, I adjure you. That means I put you under oath. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? I'm sure our Lord knew if he said yes that that would mean his death. I think if I had been there, I would not have been quite as direct as our Lord was. I might have said, well, yes and no, it's not what you think. Uh, we need to talk about this a little bit. Don't do anything rash here in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, I'd probably be working on it from that angle. But our Lord looked at him and said, thou sayest. And in our language, that would be, you said it. I am the Son of God. And the high priest tore his garments. Priests are not supposed to tear their garments. And he said, what further need have we of witnesses? This man is guilty of blasphemy. And of course, the penalty for blasphemy was death. And so our Lord was judged worthy of death at this time. You see, if our Lord had claimed to be the Son of God and was not the Son of God, then uh, that would be blasphemy. It just happened, though, that this would happen to be the Son of God. Isn't that right? <laughs> and so it wasn't blasphemy. And they hit him. And they slapped him with the open hand. And they made fun of him and mocked him. And they blindfolded him and hit him and said, Prophesy, thou Christ, who was it that smote thee this time? Our Lord didn't have to stand there and take any of that. He could have left any time he wanted to. He could have immobilized the whole group had he wanted to. But he didn't. And he took that abuse... And that spit that was in his face. Have you ever had anyone spit in your face? They actually spit in Jesus' face and slapped him and mocked him. And our Lord didn't answer. Like a lamb before the slaughter, he was quiet. Well, they all condemned him of death, but he had to have a, an official condemnation. And so very early on the way we count time, which would be Friday morning, the Sanhedrin was assembled, the court of the Jews, the high court, and there officially Jesus was condemned to death on the charge of blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God, 
and was, of course, uh, expected then to be executed. That was the third trial, Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. Now, they could not put a man to death without getting the Romans' permission. So that brings Pontius Pilate, who happened to be the procurator of Judea and Samaria, and, of course, they were in Jerusalem, and that's where Pontius was at that time. And so very early, <coughs> right after the Sanhedrin uh, dismissed, they were bringing Jesus to Pilate. I think it is interesting that they changed the charges against Jesus to Pilate. They didn't ever tell Pilate at the first that he made himself the Son of God. They slipped up and did it later. They were afraid probably if, if he thought he was the Son of God, Pilate might be so scared he'd never touch it. So they trumped up charges that would interest a Roman governor. We have found this man to be a troubler of our nation. Now, Pilate was interested in anybody who was disturbing the nation. It was his job to keep the peace. One who forbids to give tribute to Caesar. Well, that was a lie. Just that week, our Lord had said, Render to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God's. And the third one was saying that he himself is a king. Of course, that makes it look like treason as well. And so Pilate was interested in these charges, and he brought him in, and he said, Are you a king? And our Lord uh, said, To this end was I born, to this came into the world. He said, So you're a king then? And then he went ahead and said a few other words similar to that. And Pilate went back out and said, I find no fault in this man. <laughs> in other words, let's all go home and let me eat breakfast. But they wouldn't let it go at that. They said, no, this man has caused trouble all the way from Galilee to this place. And then the old light bulb went off and Pilate said, did you say Galilee? See, Galilee was not in Pilate's jurisdiction. He was over only Judea and Samaria. Herod Antipas was over Galilee. And it just so happened because the Passover was in progress, Herod Antipas was in Jerusalem. So we have thought of a way to pass the book. This was the old Herod that had killed John the Baptist, had married his uh, Herodias. You remember all that story there in Salome, danced before him? This is that fellow. And uh, so it was that they brought Jesus before Herod Antipas. Well, there they were accusing him, of course, and all of this. But our Lord never said a word to Herod. As far as I know, this is the only person in the Bible that our Lord wouldn't even talk to. I remember one time I was in a meeting in Oxford, Mississippi, and Mackie, you'll appreciate this. Your daddy uh, was giving me a ride back to wherever I was spending the night, Brother Shields. And he said, you know, we're having Sunday school lessons on the conversations with Jesus here, and I'm teaching Sunday school in the morning, and the topic is the conversation with Herod. He said, he didn't say anything to Herod. What am I going to do all period? <laughs> I thought, well, you do have a problem. <laughs> I mean, making that last all period is going to be a challenge, isn't that right? I thought about it a minute, and I said, well, I guess if I had that assignment, I would point out that the greatest insult of all is to be ignored and not even spoken to. I'd rather be fussed on than given the silent treatment, hadn't you? And then I guess I would spend the time showing why the Lord held him in such contempt that he was the only one, as far as we know, that he would not even speak to. Well, I don't know what he did, but I thought I gave him good advice. And I always thought of that when we get to this point right here. And they bowed down and they put this gorgeous apparel on him and all of this, and nothing came of it. Our Lord never said a word, never even graced him with an answer. And so they put his own clothes back on him. This was the fifth trial. 
and sent him back to Pilate. This was the second trial before Pilate and the sixth and last trial. Well, Pilate was trying to get out of all this. He didn't think he deserved anything. And he says, I have found no fault in this man. Herod has found no fault in this man. I will therefore scourge him and release him. That's what we'll do. We'll give him a beating and that'll satisfy your bloodthirst and we won't be killing an innocent man. What do you say if we try that? They said, no. No, that won't work. Well, then he thought of something else. See, this was the Passover. And during the Passover, it was customary for the Roman officials to release a political prisoner. See, the Jewish population may swell from, I don't know what, maybe 100,000 to a million when all the people from all the world around come in on Passover. And so uh, very likely uh, there were huge crowds there all the time during Passover. And this was a time to release a political prisoner to keep the Jews in a good mood until all the visitors went home and the crowd was more manageable. So he said, probably picked the very worst alternative he could, a fellow named Barabbas, a murderer and an insurrectionist, guilty of murder and treason both. And he said, whom shall I release unto you, Jesus or Barabbas? There is some textual evidence that the first name of Barabbas was Jesus. The word Barabbas just means son of the father or junior, and uh, so it very likely he had two Jesuses here. I thought that was an interesting possibility. Well, of course, as you know, they said, give us Barabbas. He said, what then shall I do with Jesus? Boy, that was a mouthful. That's a sermon in itself, isn't it? What shall I do with Jesus? And they said, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, why, what evil has he done? And they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. Well, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be scourged. When a man is scourged, he is stripped from the waist up, and he is tied uh, over a stake where his back would be tense, you see, like so, his head near the ground. And the scourge was a stock that had a number of lashes, and on the ends of these lashes were bits of metal, glass, and rock, anything that cut. And the scourger would hit this across the back of the man. And there was no limit to the number of blows. No 40 stripes save one here. Usually the signal, I've been told, was... Uh, when the man fell unconscious. Sometimes those uh, had been known to come around, some of those lashes, and tear the inside, the entrails, maybe ex rip the abdomen and expose the intestines and liver or whatever. Come around and even knock a man's eye out. Men had been known to die from scourging. Paul said, five times I received of the Jews, forty stripes save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. They tied him up to scourge him. In Acts chapter 21, that he said, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> he pulled rank. And, he, and, of course, they dropped the scourge immediately. You don't scourge Roman citizens. Roman citizens may get other beatings, but they're exempt from the scourge. And our Lord was beaten with that scourge. I went to the Passion Play at Eureka. And, of course, being the Bible scholar, I sure I was going to find a lot of mistakes in what they did and uh, be a good critic of all how they did it wrong. And that was the most boring night. I couldn't find anything to complain about. Of course, they had to fill in sometimes when we don't have any factual material. But uh, I thought it was done very, very well. There was the scourging scene, though, I thought was done in a way that I hadn't thought of. And that is, uh, they had two scourgers. And they had one man hit, and while he was drawing back, the other one would hit. 
So the poor man being beaten couldn't even get a breath between blows, like whack, 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 just like that. And I wonder if that's the type of beating our Lord received. The worst of all, worse than the beating with rods, worse than the forty stripes, save one, the scourging. Our Lord took it. And probably he took it until he fell for a momentary lapse of unconsciousness. He didn't have to do that. He could have left any time he wanted to, but he didn't. They put his robe, a gorgeous robe on him, and they, I would imagine that blood soaked through that robe, and they planted a crown of thorns on his head, mocking him as a king, and they gave him a reed, a staff, and after the scourging, Pilate brought him before the crowd and said, Behold the man. Unless you had the inflection or recording of the inflection of Pilate's voice, you couldn't tell for sure what he means. He could mean, there's the, there he is, poor fellow, something like that. <laughs> Look at that. I hope you're happy now. Or it could have been a statement of admiration. Behold the man. I like that one better. Pilate was greatly impressed with Jesus. And they said, crucify him, crucify him. He said, you take him yourselves and crucify him. And they said, we have a law that he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Uh-oh, they hadn't told that to Pilate. Brought him back in here. He said, where are you from? <laughs> and uh, Jesus said, do you say this of yourselves or did others say it of you? He said, am I a Jew? Your own nation has brought you to me. What have you done? And our Lord said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. But my kingdom is not from hence. Pilate went back out. He tried to talk to Jesus one more time, and the Lord wouldn't even answer him. I guess he was tired of talking to Pilate. And he said, Do you not answer me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release or to condemn you? He said, You wouldn't have any authority if it weren't given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered you to me has the greater sin. Well, that scared him even more. And so he came back and was, I'm sure, minded to turn him loose. He offered the possibility of uh, releasing others. His wife had already told him to have nothing to do with that just man because uh, she had suffered many things of him that night in a dream. And I'm sure that he was wanting to turn him loose. And I guess if it's all right to say a church, the Jews played their trump card. They said, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. Pilate had a ring on his finger, probably the middle finger of the right hand with the head of Caesar, and written in Latin around there was, friend of Caesar. That was a good ring to have. It kept you your job. And sometimes in the days of these temperamental Caesars, it kept you your head. It almost came down, either he goes or you go. Pilate had already had two or three major complaints about his administration, and about one more major complaint, and he would be recalled, and good things do not happen to procurators who are recalled. They're not given full retirement. Well, they are, but not where you'd want to go. Uh, and so it almost came down, either he goes or you go. And he called for a basin of water and washed his hands in their sight. I am pure from the blood of this innocent man. See yourselves to it. His blood be on us and on our children. They didn't know what they said that time either, didn't they? 
His blood be on us and on our children. And then Pilate delivered them over, delivered him over to be crucified. I think one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible must be John 19:17, and Jesus went out bearing the cross for himself. As a part of a man's punishment, he had to carry his own cross. A person could not be crucified inside the city walls, and so our Lord went from Pilate's judgment hall, which was probably near the temple, out the north gate, out what's called the Via Dolorosa, the sorrowful way, they called it, up to a hill north of town called Calvary in Latin, Golgotha in Hebrew. And uh, so as a part of his punishment, he carried that cross. Had a lot of people there the day before, or a few days, a week before, I guess, when he came in the triumphal entry, but there wasn't anybody there helping him carry his cross. I would imagine he struggled under the load and maybe even fell. He'd been up all night without any nourishment. After all the abuse he'd had and his back beaten uh, into ribbons and the loss of not telling how much blood already, and the cross would weigh him maybe a hundred pounds or more. And I would imagine he fell under that load. That's probably why they had Simon of Cyrene. Hey, they grabbed the fellow who was just passing by and made him go behind him and carry it. And you know, you wonder if our Lord did fall, if uh, there might have been a moment in his mind when the thought crossed his mind, why don't we just leave this thing right here in the road and get out of all this? I think I've gone about as far as I can go. But he didn't. He went on. He went on until he came to the hill north of town, Golgotha. He saw the women that were weeping as he was walking. And he said, Daughters, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For if they do these things in a green tree, what will they do in a dry tree? In other words, it's going to get worse. He was probably thinking about the Holocaust in AD 70. But at any rate, uh, he made it uh, to the hill outside of town. And they offered Jesus some wine mingled with uh, some kind of a sedative in order to dull the pain. That was the value in those days. But when he tasted it, he spit it out. He didn't want that. He wanted to be have full faculty, uh, possession of his faculties. So he did. And then they would take his hand, stretch his arm out, and there would be a man with a little apron and uh, some spikes in it and a little mallet. And the spike would be put between the bones in the hand and a lot of times between the wrist bones. Some say the hand would tear, but I've been told also there's a little seat that they can sort of halfway sit on and many had been known to be crucified by the hand. But uh, there's been some evidence, a great deal of evidence, that it was customary to drive it between the arm bones. I don't know what happened. Jesus said the nail prints in his hand and uh, I've always felt like it might be the hand but there are more important things we can work on than that and they took that nail and they drove it through his hand and I would imagine the pain there would just be indescribable and the blood spurted and screamed sometime and people had been known just from the very shock of that as the stake drove through his body would just lapse into a moment of unconsciousness And then they would take the other arm, and then again the nail, and then again the hammer, and again the blood, and the scream perhaps, and maybe again just a moment 
of merciful unconsciousness. And then they would cross the legs and through between the ankle bones they would drive the spike that would hold them. You just had a sprained ankle, you know how that feels. You can imagine what having a spike driven through both ankles might feel like or through the feet. And then they would pick this up and they would drop it into the hole that had been dug for it. And I would imagine as that jarred to the bottom of that hole that the flesh would tear and the man probably would let out even another scream. They put an inscription over Jesus' head. It was customary to put a man's crime over his head. So you could go by and see why he was dying, being executed. And he put up there in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Of course, they didn't like that. They told Pilate, don't say King of the Jews. Say he said he was the King of the Jews. Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And he left it there just like that. Some of you may have seen a picture of the cross, uh, Christ on the cross with I-N-R-I above it. That is Latin abbreviation for Jesus of Nazareth, King Rex of the Jews. Really J-N-R-J in, in Latin, so I just thought I'd throw that in. But anyway, it was written in three languages, uh, spelled out, I would imagine, on the cross of Jesus. I've been told besides the pain from the wounds, one of the first things that he realizes is his impossible to breathe. And so he pushes upon the nail in his feet and, and breathes, and then he drops and hangs by the spikes in his hand. But then he can't breathe. And then again and again and again. If that had gone on for an hour, that would have been way too much. But our Lord was nailed to the cross at nine in the morning, and it was six hours or more after that before he died. Intense agony and pain, never letting up. Some of those people do not die, maybe from the loss of blood, but just sheer exhaustion from dealing with the pain and the suffering. The crowd ran around the foot of the cross. Aha! He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ come down from the cross and we may see and believe. <laughs> Do you think he could have come down from the cross? And you know, I would like to have seen him do that, wouldn't you? Just jump down there and clean house. You wouldn't have to do anything but just start to get off. Uh-oh, he's getting out, get out of here, he's getting off of there. But he didn't. What held Jesus to the cross? The nails held the other two. But it wasn't the nails that held Jesus. It was his love for you and me, for all mankind. It was his desire to do the Father's will. And if this is what it took, this is how much he cared about you and me. This is what he did. The soldiers took the garments of Jesus and uh, they parted them. They, that was part of their day's wages. When they came to the coat woven without seam, they decided not to tear it in four parts, but to gamble to see which one would get it. Jesus would be the first one to need that coat that they'd crucified. And... Uh, then there's an interesting statement. And they sat and watched him there. This was another day's work for the soldier. You know, they'd done it before. They'd do it again. The sooner it's over, the better. We can go home. They had no idea what they were seeing, did they? As they saw that blood run down there and form puddles on the ground, 
They had no idea that that was the blood of the Son of God. Their only hope for salvation and forgiveness. No idea in the world. Didn't even have a clue what they were missing. Just another day's work. And they sat. And they watched him there. Jesus' mother was at the foot of the cross, along with some other women and John. And our Lord said unto her, Woman, behold thy son. And to John, behold thy mother. This is the first of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, or possibly the second. We don't know for sure the order. One that may have been the first, or possibly the second, was what our Lord said to the enemies around them. Aha! Aha! Thou that saved others, save yourself. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. He saved others. He can't save himself. If he be the Christ, let him come down. And in the middle of all of that, do you remember the words of Jesus? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you imagine that? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So there were the words spoken to Mary, the words spoken to the enemies. There were two thieves, as I said, who were killed on either side, one on either side. And uh, at first it seemed that both of them were reviling Jesus. And then finally one obviously was impressed with his demeanor and rebuked the other one and said, Dost thou not fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly? But this man has done nothing amiss. And he cried and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The last kind words ever said to Jesus, ironically, were said by a thief. Isn't that something? He said, had words for his mother. He had words for his enemies. And he had words of comfort for the man who died beside him. The first three sayings of Jesus were for someone else, not for him. There was darkness over all the land from twelve noon to three in the afternoon. And near that time, the end of that period, our Lord cried out in a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Eli means my God. Eli, Eli, my God, my God. Lama, for what reason? Why? Sabakta is you have forsaken me, means me. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Some of them thought he was calling Elijah when he said Eli. But he was calling his God. I mentioned a moment ago that I would tell you later on what I thought was the ultimate, ultimate suffering. And I believe this must have been it. You know, to be betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, forsaken by the disciples, treated in this way is all bad. But at this moment, our Lord realized that the Father in heaven had left him and had left him there to die. He was alone. And what a horrible feeling it must be for the first time in all the existence in eternity. He was alone. The father heard his cry, but he didn't answer. Can you imagine 
how much love that would show not only in Jesus, but also in the Father. Can any of you fathers imagine your son in this kind of a situation and have them cry out and say, why have you forsaken me and know that you're leaving in there to die? Would you allow that to continue? I'm pretty sure I'd say that's enough of that. We're through. That's all. Cut it off. But he didn't. And the Father in heaven himself turned his back and left his son to die. Do you know why? Because that's how much he cared, lest you perish. That's how much he cared. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Probably through the loss of blood or maybe just through the fever or just going through the day without any nourishment, the Lord cried next, I thirst. And so when they called Eli, someone thought he was calling Elijah, and they ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar, and they gave him to drink, put it on a staff, and they said, let be, let us see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And with our Lord's lips thus moistened, we have the last two of the seven sayings. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and it is finished. And the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth trembled, and the earth split asunder, and the rocks split asunder. And the centurion who stood over by against him when he saw that he so gave up the ghost said, Truly, this man was a son of God. Truly, this man was a son of God. They went to break the legs of the prisoners. The prisoners would die if the legs were broken because they couldn't push to breathe and they would suffocate. They didn't want the bodies on the cross during the Passover Sabbath. But when they came to Jesus, he was already dead. And a soldier took a spear and thrust it into his side. And there came out blood and then water. And thus ends the drama, the greatest drama that this world has ever known. The greatest expression of the Father's love for every one of us, individually. I believe that if you were the only one that needed it, you're that important to God that he would be willing to give his son for you. That is how much he loves you. That is what you mean to him. It took a great sacrifice. It took a great gift. It took suffering and blood to make your salvation possible. Somebody said, I asked the Lord how much he loved me, and he stretched out his hands and died. I have just one question to leave with you, and that's all. I've shown you how much heaven cares. The question I leave with you is, how much do you care? How much do you care about what Jesus did? How much do you care about your soul? Can you listen to this without being moved? As you look at your own life, do you care enough to give your life to him? I don't understand how we could really fully 
feel and sense what we've had tonight without our hearts being touched. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Seems to me the least that we could do would be to give our lives completely to him. How much do you care? That question you may well answer as together we stand to sing.